You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Midland, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered missional family. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit www.redeemermidland.org. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, turn to Acts chapter 2. Welcome to Easter at Redeemer. For those of you in the room, I am truly uh, excited and blessed that you're here and excited to talk about Jesus. For those joining online, welcome from wherever you are today. Uh, J. Warner Wallace, not to be confused with William Wallace, was a homicide detective, and uh, he was actually featured on Dateline a few times, uh, and he decided, he was an atheist, he decided he wanted to put his detective skills to work uh, and actually uh, look at the resurrection, the physical and the bodily resurrection of Jesus, the claim that Christians have made for 2,000 years that Jesus rose from the dead, and he was asking the question, can a rational, logical person actually believe that this event happened? Uh, He was an atheist when he began his search, and uh, he put his detective, detective skills to work, and as it happens almost every single time, when somebody begins to actually look at the facts, they become overwhelmingly convinced very quickly that it did, in fact, happen, and this is what happened with him. He began uh, to be a, a proponent uh, writing and talking about just the reality and the proof that Jesus physically rose from the dead, and he wrote a book uh, called Person of Interest, which is a fantastic book, and, and this is the response that he came to, that there is absolutely no other explanation uh, for the the presence and reality of the Christian church and what has taken place other than Jesus rose from the dead. And he makes the case that Jesus uh, has has left an indelible mark on the planet. He has changed planet Earth more than any other human being has. And all over the planet, there's only one person that the entire planet is talking about today. And he is the most unlikely person to have changed the world. He was born in a very irrelevant, small, hick town. This would be like us showing up and uh, saying that someone from Crane is going to change the world. If you're from Crane, I'm sorry, I had to pick somewhere. Uh, He never traveled more than 200 miles from his home, and when he did, he did so on foot. Uh, He was not a billionaire that changed the world. He was not a millionaire that changed the world. Uh, By our standards, listen, he was not even a thousandaire. He did not have anything other than the clothes on his back. He was uh, stricken with poverty, and he was homeless for most of his life. He had no social media platform. He had no website. He had no TikTok. He had no YouTube channel by which to influence and change um, the world. He was never in the military. Uh, He never held a political office. He did not come from a prestigious and a powerful family. Uh, His mother was a teenage girl uh, that was poor herself, and most thought that he was an illegitimate son of hers, uh, and his son Joseph was a blue-collar man that swung a hammer uh, for a living. He did not have an expensive education. Uh, He never married, was single his whole life, never had kids, never owned a home, never had a 401k or any type of uh, retirement plan to lean upon. Uh, He had a very short public ministry. His life in the public eye was only three years long. He only had 12 followers. Uh, One would deny him, one would betray him, the rest would abandon him. 
The, 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 the small number of people that were his posse, that were his squad, uh, there was none left when Jesus would give his life. He was crucified as a convicted felon. Uh, he was buried in a borrowed tomb or a borrowed grave, and yet this man has changed history more than any other human being on the planet, yet he was absolutely the most unlikely person to do so. The, the, the entire globe, we even split the history of planet Earth based on B.C. before Christ and A.D. Anno Domini, or the year of our Lord, the common era that it's split by the birth and the life of this one man. How is, that, how is it possible? Is it because he was a good teacher? No. There have been millions of good teachers. The planet is only talking about one of them today. Uh, is it because he's a nice guy? No, there's a lot of nice guys. We're only talking about one today. Uh, is it because he truly cared about the poor? A lot of people care about the poor. We're only talking about one today. Uh, is it even because he was crucified? There were thousands, probably tens of thousands of people that were crucified under Roman rule, yet we are only talking about one today. He was a real man that really died and really rose from the grave. The question I want to ask today is what does that mean for you? Uh, what does that mean for you. When you look at the Gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first four books of the New Testament, which are the biography of Jesus, his life, his ministry, his teaching, his death, his burial, his resurrection, just the, the story of Jesus. When you look at that, you notice that the people that met him or heard him only responded in one of two ways. He was so clear about his message, and especially as those three years of his public ministry progressed, uh, he was so incredibly clear, uh, he would increasingly push people to the polar, to polar opposites where they only responded in one of two ways, not a third way, and I'll explain what I mean. Uh, as he would progress in his ministry, there was a growing number of people that loved Jesus. They had abandoned things and, and sacrificed things to follow him. Uh, they had left family. They had endured persecution. That He had changed their life, and they were all in. They were 100% in. They loved Jesus, and actually, you would find out later on that many of them loved Jesus enough to die for him. The uh, Church history is riddled with uh, people that loved Jesus so much they were martyrs on his behalf. That was one group. The second group uh, are people that absolutely hated Jesus. They hated what he preached. He was incredibly offensive uh, to them. He made some wild claims like uh, he was God and he uh, created all things and he was the judge that was going to judge everyone living and dead and send them to one of two places for eternity. And he just rubbed some people the wrong way so much so that they were willing to kill him. And what you see with people that truly they met or they heard the real authentic, historical Jesus is that they either loved him or hated them. That was their two options. There was no uh, really middle ground with Jesus. There was no uh, third way. Uh, but I do want to mention this secret third option because although it's not really present in the Bible, it's, it's present in the Bible belt, Okay, there's like this kind of third option that if, if you honestly look at people that met the real historical Jesus, they never responded this way, but uh, it's, it's a challenge because a lot of people in our culture today kind of choose this, well, I don't really love him, don't really hate him. I kind of have this, this middle ground towards Jesus. He's a, he's a nice guy. You know, I like him. I like his teaching. He's, he's very helpful. 
Uh, I like him on my, my team. And it's just kind of this, um, this, this lukewarm attitude towards Jesus. I'm not hot, not cold. I haven't heard enough about Jesus to, to hate him. I don't hate him. I don't want him to die. I don't despise him and reject him. But I also haven't heard enough about him to completely renovate my life and reorder my life around him as the epicenter where everything else in my life goes out the window and he becomes the center and I actually worship him. I haven't heard enough where I hate him, but I also haven't heard enough where everything in my life is filtered through worshiping him. It's kind of this middle ground that if, if, if you've met the real Jesus, he just has a way of removing that where that's, that's not an option. And so this is what I want to propose uh, if, if that's, maybe that's, maybe that's you, honestly, maybe you've heard some things about Jesus, you like him, seems like a good guy, has some nice things to say, seems kind, seems patient, seems forgiving, and you want to kind of add him onto your life. I would propose that th- that is probably not your fault. It's probably because in our culture, you have never truly been introduced to the real Jesus, and what he truly had to say and some of the things that he said to try to uh, force us to decide one way or another, to remove the middle ground, to remove the option that Jesus is just kind of an add-on. Uh, I would say probably it's, uh, it's more of the fault of, of p- preachers and pastors and maybe Christians that just simply uh, haven't told you about the real Jesus. One of my favorite pastors um, was uh, preaching and pastoring a few decades ago and actually spent quite a bit of his time in East Texas of all places. Uh, His name's Leonard Ravenhill. And with with a name like that, you are destined to be a preacher or to, like, have your own team of Quidditch in Harry Potter. Team Ravenhill. It's like, uh, Leonard Ravenhill, I love him. I love what he says. I love listening to his sermons. And he said this one time. He said, and this was just a few decades ago. He said, if Jesus had preached the same message that ministers preach today, he never would have been crucified. And yet he was crucified because his message was so offensive. There is no middle ground with Jesus. Uh, My wife and I are approaching our 15-year anniversary here in a few weeks, which I am super excited about. Um, Thanks to Hannah for putting up with me. It really shows my uh, stellar ability to make good decisions and her patience and kindness and long-suffering. But years ago when uh, when I was uh, going to propose, uh, this was a surprise. It was even a surprise to Hannah. We hadn't talked about marriage. I hadn't said I love you yet, but I wanted to marry her. And so I uh, was reading about Jesus, and Jesus said uh, that he went to prepare a place for his bride, so I thought, well, I'll do the same. So I went and bought a house. Like This was the most expensive day of my life. Uh, I bought a house, I bought an engagement ring, and I bought a new pair of hiking boots all the same day, and a headlamp, those four things, because this was my plan. Uh, Hannah was coming with me to my family's place in the Panhandle uh, for Thanksgiving, and I was going to take her with her new hiking boots that I had just bought her from Cabela's to up to the top of this hill, and I was going to propose on Thanksgiving night on top of this hill with my headlamp because I was going to do it uh, as the sun was setting. And my headlamp had three settings. It had a normal white light, it had a green light, and it had a blue light. So I was out the night before uh, with the ring trying to see which light made the diamond look biggest. (laughs) Write this down. Blue. 
blue. And so I convinced Hannah to go for a walk with me, and the only person I had told was her parents. I called them in Georgia and asked them their permission uh, to marry their daughter, put her, uh, gave her her boots, put my headlamp on. We march up to the top of the hill. I pull the ring out, and I bend down on one knee, and I, I like, sing this Josh Turner song, Would You Go With Me, right? fantastic song. It's actually the song we walked out of our uh, wedding to also. And I bent down and I said, Hannah Marie Harper, will, I, I love you. Will you marry me? And from that point on, some of you were like, well, what happened? <laughs> there were only two acceptable options, right? She could have very well said No. And I would have had to accept that. That would have been a real bummer. Uh, that would have been a real difficult walk back to the house and then Thanksgiving um, celebration. Um, but she definitely could have said no. And she could have said, what's the other option? Yes. I love you. I am in this with you for better, for worse, and in, 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 rich or in richness or, or, or poorer or sickness or health. Like, uh, I'm just in. I love you. Let's do this marriage thing together as long as we both shall live, which is what she said. Praise God. Easter, Jesus still performs miracles. What I would not have accepted and what is the only answer that would not have been a rational response is if I'm, I'm bending down on one knee and I've got my headlamp on blue and I've got the ring and I say, will you marry me? She says, well, yeah, okay. I mean, you're, you're okay. Yeah, let's, let's, uh, let's do this. We can hang out maybe, you know, once or twice a year. And uh, I, I just want to make sure we're clear about this. I'll probably still spend most of my time and my money on my hobbies, uh, probably still spend most of my uh, vacation and most of the holidays with my other friends from college. Uh, we should probably sleep in different beds like Lucy and Desi did. Not really interested in making any sacrifices. Oh, and I probably will want to be seeing other people along the way. If she presented that, which, again, she didn't, what would my reaction be? Like, no, that, that, that's not an option. What I'm presenting to you, it's a, it's, it's a yes or a no. It's a hot or cold. It's a go big or a go home kind of option. And, and you really have in Acts chapter 2 the story of the, of the response of, of people with the invitation that Jesus had given them. And so I, I, I think I could submit this idea for your approval, and if we're all very honest, then we would say, maybe, maybe we've never thought about it this way, but if Jesus is who he says he is, if he's the God of the universe that created all things for his purpose and for his glory, and he looked down and saw that things were in chaos, that sin was hurting people and destroying things and marring his image, and he invades human history as a human being born in the most unlikely of manners in the small hick town, raised per absolutely perfect in word, thought, and deed, dies on a cross in the place of someone else as a substitute for sinners, drags our sin into the grave, rises from the dead three days later, and if our response is, cool, Jesus, I just, I kind of like you. I think I just kind of want to, I, I had this thing going in my life and these hopes and dreams and uh, things I wanted to do and uh, things I wanted to be, and, and I want to keep pursuing that. I just kind of want to add, add you on a little bit. Like, we would all agree, wouldn't that be horribly offensive to Jesus? There, there, there is no third option. 
And even if it's somewhat of a third option in the Bible Belt, it's only because we haven't met and heard from the real Jesus. So on this Easter, let me read some red letters for you. I want Jesus to be able to speak for himself. Um, So a few things, and we're going to cruise through these things fairly quickly, and they're going to be here on the screen for you. These are words from the mouth of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. Seems like he's very binary with him. It's like you're, you're for, there's only two. There's not three, there's two. You're either for me or against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. In Revelation chapter 3, the Apostle John quotes the Lord Jesus. It's in red letters. He's talking to a church. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm right there in the middle, uh, I, I neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Luke 16, 13, Jesus says this, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He's talking about you have to choose one God, and the illustration that he uses is money. You can't serve two. You need to be wholehearted, absolutely devoted to one. He doesn't leave any room for a middle option. In Luke chapter 18, this is the story of the rich young ruler, and really this is every, what happened that day was every pastor's dream. A rich young ruler wants to be a part of the church. Rich, great, because we got a lot of work to do and we need some resource, resources to do it. This, this young man was, was very rich. He was young, great. We got a lot of time, a lot of years, a lot of decades with him, uh, and he was a ruler. He was a political business ruler. He had some clout. He had some influence. He had a network. And so this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and basically saying, like, what, what do I need to do? What, what's the step for me? And this is what Jesus says. One thing you still lack, sell all that you have, and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. What is Jesus doing? He's trying to see if this man choosing between millions of dollars and just simply Jesus, which one he would choose because there's no middle ground with Jesus. And verse 23 says, but when he, that's the rich young ruler, heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. And Jesus let him walk away because there's no middle ground. He was trying to find out if this man loved him enough to die for him or hated him enough to kill him, and he found out that his heart was very much tethered and connected with his money and his riches. So Jesus presents this to just kind of do away with the middle ground because it's one thing to have money, and it's another thing like this, man, for the money to have you. Acts chapter 2. The background, and I've preached, I think actually I used this, uh, this text last year for Easter because it's like the first Easter sermon, really, uh, other than the, the ladies that declared that Jesus had just risen from the grave. Um, this is the first Easter sermon that was preached uh, a few weeks after the, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So th- this is the picture. They're in Jerusalem. There were p- p- hundreds of thousands of people, mainly Jews, that had come from all over the known world or the Roman Empire. Empire, uh, converged upon Jerusalem to celebrate uh, what was called the, uh, the, the pa- Passover had been uh, the thing they just celebrated with the cross, and they were about to celebrate Pentecost. 
And so thousands and thousands of people there. And the death and resurrection of Jesus was still abuzz. It had turned the city upside down. There was uh, really kind of chaos happening uh, because they thought this Jesus movement had almost fizzled out. And then in a moment, it is now taking over the city and pushing outside even the walls of, uh, of inner Jerusalem. Because Jesus had risen from the dead. And all these people start gathering around, and Peter stands up. And, and one of the things that has convinced me of the resurrection is that Peter is just absolutely, completely two different people. He was a coward the night Jesus was, uh, w- was crucified, and he just completely denied that he even knew him, was scared for his life. And then a few weeks later, he's preaching to the people that murdered his follower, and he is absolutely fearless and courageous because that's what happens if your leader rises from the dead. It has a way of changing you. And so Peter's filled with courage, and he's preaching uh, to thousands of people, open air in Jerusalem. And uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 22 says this. The apostle Peter preaching, he says, Men of Israel... Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, small town where Jesus grew up. He's he's reminding people that this wasn't an idea. Jesus wasn't a fictitious uh, character. He was a human being that all of them had been uh, aware of his presence. And he came for, he was a a historical person uh, that grew up in this town. Maybe he pointed at it. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. That's Peter saying, Jesus stands out from the rest because God put his, his mark on him by proving that this man is different. He was able to perform miracles and do signs and wonders that many of these people in the crowd that day had witnessed with their own eyes. He said, that's God putting a spotlight on Jesus saying that this is a different man. Verse 23, this same Jesus, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, meaning the cross was planned. Just like theoretically FedEx or UPS delivers a package to your door on purpose, this, this is Peter saying God delivered Christ up to the cross on purpose. He was delivered up according to the definite foreknowledge and plan of God. You crucified. There's a lot packed in those two words. There's a lot of courage with Peter. Could you imagine standing up in front of a few thousand people, many of which were responsible for pulling off the execution of your leader, and you have the courage to look them in the eye and say, you murdered God, you killed God. So on Peter, there's a lot of courage, but could you imagine if you were listening to the sermon that day? Could we agree that's fairly offensive? (laughs) If you showed up, I said, hey, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Thanks for tuning in the live stream. You're guilty of murdering God. Then you might be like, whew, that is a rough way to start, Peter. If you're trying to allow us to kind of maintain this middle ground, that's not really a good way to start. That seems fairly offensive. He says, you crucified and you killed by the hands of lawless men. Very offensive, probably pretty hard for many of them to swallow. Verse 24, but God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is Peter very quickly saying, we know about the life and the ministry of Jesus. It was full of miracles. We know about the death of Jesus. It was planned and foretold. And we know about the resurrection of Jesus. God didn't leave him in the grave. He rose rose him from the dead. 
And then verses 25 through 35, uh, he, he goes back to the Old Testament to look at uh, prophecies from, from King David and from Psalms, basically a thousand years before this happened, portraying that the Messiah, the Christ, would die, go in the grave, and would not stay there, would come back to life. And then verse 36 says this, let all, because of all these things, because of who Jesus is, what he has done, and the resurrection, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. So the culmination of this sermon that would begin the, what we know of as the Christian church the culmination of this is like the resurrection proved two very specific things about Jesus, that because he died and he rose, he is uniquely qualified as the Christ, okay? That means uh, the Messiah, the anointed one, or what we think of as a savior. He's uniquely qualified to save people, to rescue us from uh, our sin, the penalty of our sin, the presence of sin in our lives, Satan, death, hell, the grave. Jesus is uniquely qualified as Christ, as the Messiah, as the savior, in fact, he would go so far as to say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except me. And you think, well, what about our culture? Our culture says it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're genuine and authentic. Well, they disagree with Jesus. And if you rise from the dead, you get to say some things. If you pull off a resurrection, then I'm more interested in what you have to say than what Oprah has to say. And Jesus says he is uniquely qualified as the Savior. But he also says that uh, Peter's making this case that uh, his resurrection uniquely qualifies him as Lord. Did y'all see? Look back at verse 36 because this is important. This is not what Peter said. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him either Lord or Christ. You pick whichever one you like. It's like, it's not, an, it's not an either or, it's a both and. He's made him both Lord and Christ. What does that mean? That means there is no third option. Lord means he is uniquely qualified for you to absolutely recenter and reorganize everything in your life around him. Because Jesus, his resurrection, is trying to gather worshipers. And so when Jesus like, gets up in our business and says some things, he's trying to push us to make us decide. Like there's no middle option. You either need to reject everything that he said and go about life on your own, or you need to embrace everything. And he is a savior, but he's also the Lord. And we need to reorient things around him. And so I want to jump a few verses beyond that because what happens is 3,000 people said, we're, we're in. We believe Jesus was the Christ. He proved it. We, we, we saw his miracles. We heard his teaching. We saw his dead body. And I touched him. I talked to him. I witnessed him. I hung out with him after he rose from the dead. We're in. We believe that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Christ. They embrace the full gospel. That Jesus doesn't only save us from our sin. He saves us so that we can reorient everything about our lives around him. And those 3,000 people... When they realize, oh, this is true, oh my gosh, Peter, what do we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. 
And so they do. They repent, they confess their sins, and they're baptized. And when they're baptized, what they're displaying is, is that Jesus is now the center of their life. They're not saying, well, I just, I just kind of want to keep going on my way and add Jesus on. It's a declaration that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And if you'll go a few verses later, I, I've preached this verse so many times here, but I saw it in a little bit different light honestly, last night. Acts 2.42 is a description of the first church or the first Christians or really those 3,000 people that decided there is, there's no middle ground. Jesus was very clear. They interacted with the real, true, authentic Jesus and knew they had to reject and hate everything or absolutely embrace him and reorient their lives around him. And so those that decided Jesus was not just the Savior, he wasn't just insurance to get out of hell, but he was the Lord. This describes how they responded. Acts 2.42 says, they, those who embraced Jesus as both Lord and Christ, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's number one, to fellowship, to breaking bread, and prayers. That's a description of them reorienting their lives in a new way with Jesus at the center. And I'll, just a spoiler alert, this is the way Jesus has changed the world through people who are not lukewarm and just kind of half-hearted and add Jesus on to their agenda and schedule already, through people who respond to him as Lord and Christ. I want to look through these things first because maybe that's you, like, nobody knows that this is a safe place. Maybe you came in like, I think I was just kind of adding Jesus on. Like, I didn't hate him, but I sure wasn't looking at my finances through the lens of Jesus. I sure wasn't thinking about conflict resolution or, or how Jesus has to do with uh, my marriage or my kids or um, the way I forgive someone or the way I deal with conflict. Then what, how they responded is how we should respond. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that overnight everything in their life changed and Jesus was at the center. It means they began this long process of learning what in the world does it mean that Jesus is Lord. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. If I could have a little bit of creative license, what happened? Oh, they, they, they realized there's no third option. Jesus is Lord and Christ, and they got in a Bible study. They're like, uh, if, if Jesus is Lord, we got to know what he says. we got to know what he thinks. We have to know what he wants. So they devoted themselves to this long process of understanding the apostles' teaching. What does Jesus say about my work ethic? What does Jesus say about my sexual life? What does he say about my finances? This is the trajectory of their life to learn what does it mean that Jesus is not an add-on. He's at the center. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Number two, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Okay, if you look at the, the Greek word for that, that word fellowship, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's stronger than the word let's on, especially if you're like me and you have a Southern Baptist background. Um, the word fellowship means it's like an event or a place or a casserole. Like if there's a building, it doesn't even matter if there's any people in there. If there's a glass 13 by 9 dish with cheese on top, like it's a fellowship. Well, it's like you're by yourself, but no, it's a fellowship. I'm in the fellowship hall, and that's a casserole, right? Okay, the word fellowship is koinonia in Greek, and it means community, or it's actually referring to people. So what happened? 3,000 people said, oh, my gosh, Jesus is a package deal. He's Lord and Christ. Uh, not only am I going to need to study the Bible and be devoted to the scriptures to see what he says. They were devoted to the actual people. I'm going to need a family that is struggling through trying to figure out how to make Jesus the center of our lives. 
how to reorient everything around. You're going to need a family. So they devoted themselves to uh, fellowship because they needed some help and some encouragement along the way. Uh, Number three, they devoted themselves to breaking bread. Everybody say, praise God. They were carb people. (laughs) Breaking bread means two things. I I believe uh, most of the time in the scriptures it's put in one of these two things, and I think they were devoted to breaking bread in two different ways. One is community and one is communion, okay? Um, Community, if you come over to my house um, this afternoon, first of all, don't because I'll be asleep. Uh, If you come over this afternoon and we have a meal together, we call that what? We broke bread together. It refers to community and friendships in a home, having a meal, having some relationships. Um, But it also refers to communion. When we take the bread, we take the juice, and we what? We remind ourselves often that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, and we are to completely reorient everything in our lives around him. There's, you can't take communion and embrace a third option. So they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, God, if this is true, we got to learn some stuff. And listen, I'm sure they were intimidated that maybe they're like you. are like, I don't, I don't know anything about the Bible. I opened it one time, and I was confused. So it's a long process. It's intimidating, and you have to start somewhere. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship. They knew they were going to need a family if they were going to labor to make Jesus the center of their lives and reorient things around him. They knew they were going to need to break bread, to have authentic relationships over meal, and to be reminded often of communion, what Jesus did so that we can reorient our lives around him. And it says they were devoted to prayers. Now, it doesn't say what they prayed, but I have a strong hunch, just a maybe 12, 18, 24 months before this, the disciples who were leading this church, the 3,000 people that were saved, they asked Jesus, like, how do we pray? And Jesus gave them this prayer, and the model prayer was what? Many of y'all know this by heart. You've listened to it. You've read it many times. Um, I'm guessing they probably didn't pray God, just make me healthy, make me wealthy, just come help me uh, accomplish my vision and accomplish my dreams. They probably prayed what Jesus taught the disciples to pray, which is this. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, what? Your will be done. Even their prayers were teaching them that there's no third option. We're not trying to pray to get Jesus to do our will, but to understand his will. They're reorienting us around Jesus as the Lord or the boss. And so these 3,000 people that devoted themselves that way in a, in a response to Jesus as Lord and Savior would, this is not an overstatement, would absolutely change the world. Planet Earth has never been the same because of the movement. Even outsiders looked and like, these guys have turned the world upside down. And they did. And we're talking about what happened 2,000 years later. The best way to describe the early Christians that embraced Jesus, not just as Savior, but as Lord, like when, when people saw their lives, this is the word that most accurately described what had happened. They said they were what? Converted. What does that mean? Changed. They were changed. And let me take just a moment to to tease this out a bit. Because a lot of people want something in their life to change. Well, it's like things just aren't going well. Maybe it's, it's something internal in your soul. 
just empty, more empty than you thought you would be. Maybe it's a relationship. I don't know what it is, but a lot of people want something to change. And what happens is, unless Jesus is Lord, he doesn't change you. Because if Jesus is just Savior and not Lord, what we're saying is, well, I don't want to go to hell. That sounds bad. Uh, I also don't want you to have the ability to correct me and to challenge me and to offend me. And listen, a, a Jesus that can't offend you cannot change you. It, it, the third option, Jesus, which it, it doesn't exist in reality, what that is is like that's the Jesus that doesn't offend me. If he doesn't offend you, he doesn't have the ability to change you. Uh, when I grew up, I did a lot of sports, and I played um, uh, football, softball, ran track, and I remember uh, I was uh, one of the first pole vaulters at Bushland Elementary in the sixth grade. And so I set a school record because uh, I was the first one. And uh, I, I, I literally, I was, I, I, had a, I had a pole that I never bent the pole. The pole didn't bend. I just kind of used it, stuck it in the ground, and jumped over the pole, right? And it was funny because the, the, the standards that I was using and the ones the high jumpers were using were kind of at the same level. But I cleared six foot, set a record, and the coach said, hey, if you let me coach you and teach you, this is Coach Kane, yeah, I can make you better. I said, great. And he would coach me and he would tell me something. I was like, no, well, that's not true. This is why I do it this way. He's like, I know, but it's wrong. <laughs> and I pushed back so much, he finally just said, listen, if you don't listen to me, I, you might as well not even have a coach. Because if you want a coach that doesn't say anything offensive, you don't need a coach. I'm like, cool. Well, okay, I want to get better. I want you to coach me. I'll listen to you. You tell me what to change. And then you change, right? A counselor is the same way. This is how many people, something in my life needs to change. And I'll go to a counselor and say, I just need you to help me change. Like what you're going to find out is they are limited in their ability to help you change based on what you are willing to embrace. If you're not willing for them to offend you and say something that needs to change, they can't change you. Because a counselor can't tell you what's wrong. You're like, well, I, I, I disagree. And I do it because of this, and I do it because of that. And if we push back against everything, what we're in essence saying, hey, I want you to change me, but you don't say anything about things I need to change. <laughs> a counselor that can't offend you, they just can't help you. And so the third option, Jesus, is it's a fictitious Jesus that doesn't exist. What it is, it's a mirror that we carry around, and we've just named the mirror Jesus. Well, Jesus is fine with this. No, no, Jesus is not like you are. And, and, and if, you're, if your Savior is a mirror image of yourself, that's why you keep running into the same problems and you haven't changed. Because in order for you to be changed, you have to embrace the reality that Jesus is Lord. He calls the shots. He knows what's best. And he's going to say some offensive things. And that's what we need to hear. That's what we need to hear. Um, one of my heroes is a man named Jim Elliott. He was a missionary uh, that gave his life uh, moving with four other missionaries uh, to South America to an indigenous tribe that had never heard about Jesus, and they thought it was worth it to risk their lives for Jesus because they knew there was no middle ground. You either love Jesus and you're willing to die for him, or you hate him and you're willing to kill for him. And so Jim Elliott moves overseas, and they end up giving their lives for the sake of Christ, and uh, eventually most of this tribe will be converted to uh, followers of Jesus. Uh, 
I read his journals a few years ago, and he said something in his journals that I want to uh, close with this morning, because this is really my job today, uh, preaching in the Bible Belt on Easter. I couldn't put it better than Jim Elliott. He says, and this is a prayer that he prayed. He said, Father, make me a man of crisis. Bring those I contact to a decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road, but make me a fork that men and women must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. That's Jim Elliott saying, listen, my job is to present to you such a real, authentic, offensive Jesus so that you're forced to hate him. Hate what he says. Hate that he would have the audacity to say that you're a sinner and that you need to repent and you need to be saved. Reject him and live your life without him. Or bend your knees, bow your hearts, embrace him as Lord and Savior. Give him your sin. Give him your life. Begin the long process of reorienting everything in your life around Jesus. That's the only two options. Jesus is the most loved man on the planet and the most hated man on the planet. The only third option is people that haven't truly met him. So I'm going to present to you Jesus that is so, so truthful and so loving that he will say, he, he will speak the truth no matter what the cost is to him. And the truth that he says is the one thing that has the ability to change us. He has made him both, and he proved this by the resurrection. He has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom we crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We're in awe of you. God, I pray that you would stir up inside of our souls just an incredible awe of who you are, what you accomplished, what you did, not just in your life, but on the cross and with an empty tomb. God, I pray that you would present yourself in a very real and accurate way to all of us in this room. And God, get, get, get right up in front of us. Just stand in the middle of the road so that we realize there's no middle ground. There's no third option. It's just reject or embrace. And God, I pray that you would convince us to embrace you, that you are the, the son of God that is able to change lives. You've been doing it for thousands of years. And I pray that you would do it in someone's life this morning. We love you and we praise your name. We truly bow our knees. We bend our hearts in front of you. We worship you as the risen Lord and the risen Savior, Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.